uh, second reading is from Numbers chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, and Acts chapter 4, verse 4. These are God's words. Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, every male by their poles, from twenty years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron, shall number them by their hosts. And Acts, but many of them that heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. These are God's words. Please be seated. We're continuing our sermon series on what makes a church a church, and today we are looking at an issue which is of great importance, but which also does not require a full sermon to come to grips with. So I have taken the, uh, the, the advantage of um, Jared preaching a long sermon in order to preach a shorter one on this one small but important issue, and that issue is church membership. One of the things that makes a church a church is that it has a membership role which is entered into by taking vows. So that is the conclusion. Let's see how we get there. I've mentioned several times lately the importance of the principle that Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. And hopefully, after Jared's sermon today, you understand the importance of that principle even more accurately and fully. This is really the purpose of the gospel, to establish heavenly patterns here on earth. And we know that in the resurrection, this will be so perfectly achieved that heaven and earth will essentially be one. So let's start by looking briefly at a heavenly pattern that we don't often think about, but which is clearly stated and repeated many times in scripture. And this is the idea that there is a role of membership in heaven. This is usually called the book of life. And in it is written the name of every member of God's covenant. For example, David asks God of his enemies in Psalm 69, let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written with the righteous. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 10, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions of all the power of the enemy, and nothing in any way shall hurt you. Nevertheless, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We know that those who have gone before us are the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's Hebrews 12. And that at the final judgment, books will be opened, and then another book, which is the book of life, and the dead will be judged out of the things which are written in the books according to their works. But if any is not found written in the book of life, he will be cast into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20. We also see the book of life and enrollment in heaven in several other passages. We see it in Exodus 32. We see it in Daniel chapter 12, Philippians chapter 4, and in Revelation chapter 13. This idea of enrollment is a heavenly pattern that is rightly reflected in the earthly church. It is fitting that churches have membership roles here on earth because the church, the great universal church, has a membership role in heaven. So 1 Timothy 5.9 speaks, for instance, of the conditions for a widow to be enrolled. There was a special role for widows and qualifications for getting on that role were listed. And 
if widows got their own role, we should think, how much more must there be a general role for membership in the whole church? First Peter 5 tells us, or tells the elders, Therefore among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who am also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight not of constraint but willingly, according to the will of God, not yet for shameful gain, but of a ready mind, neither as lording it over the charge allotted to you, but making yourselves examples to the flock. So addressing shepherds in the church, the Holy Spirit, through Peter, speaks of the sheep, the congregants, who have been allotted allotted to their charge. Lording it over the charge, not lording it over the charge, allotted to you. And allotted is exactly the right word here. The Greek language literally does mean to be assigned by lot, throwing dice. It is speaking of dividing up the members of a church between the various shepherds so that each knows who he is specifically responsible for. Now, obviously, for this to be possible, there must be some kind of a list of members in the first place. The church's shepherds knew who was on the roll and which of those people were under their particular care. You see membership again, this time in the negative sense, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 5. For I, verily being absent in body, but present in spirit, have already, as though I were present, judged him that hath so wrought this thing in the name of our Lord Jesus. Ye being gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is Paul's instruction for excommunicating an unrepentant man. The Corinthians are to gather together, that is how a church comes together, and they are to deliver him to Satan, that is to put him back out into the world, which means that he is no longer to be counted as, to be treated as one of their own number. He is no longer a member of their body. But to put someone out, there must be some way to know who is in. So this is basically why churches must have some kind of membership role. It really is two reasons. Firstly, a role of membership in the universal body is patterned for us in Scripture and so should be reflected in our local bodies. And secondly, a role of membership is a practical necessity for the function of the church in terms of its basic purpose, which is discipleship. Its ability to discipline and, if necessary, to excommunicate unrepentant members relies upon having a membership role. But this does not tell us much about what membership should look like. Practically speaking, how do people get added to the membership role? Do the shepherds just ask them and they say, yeah, sure, whatever? Or do the members or the people that want to be members, do they ask and the shepherds say, sure, whatever? Do they have to sign something? Do they need to make a vow? I've said that they do need to make a vow, but scripture does not explicitly say this. But... It does, once again, give us patterns to use, and it gives us enough information about the purpose of membership to be able to say with confidence how it should be entered into. So as I just said, the the purpose of membership is fundamentally discipleship, that is, the Great Commission. This is why evangelists and street preachers should be attached to a church. You don't bring people to Christ apart from bringing them to his body. 
You don't baptize people into Christ without baptizing them into his body, into a local church. People in churches today think membership is all about just having a say in how the church is run, getting a vote in a social club. But that is not what scripture shows us. It's not that having a say is unimportant. It is that the purpose of membership is to be integrated into the body, which means that you become subject to its head. Now, remembering that head uh, is a, a, a metaphor here. The head in a church is several shepherds, ideally. To become a member of a church really is to submit yourself under the discipleship of its shepherds. At a simple pragmatic level, for discipleship and for discipline to have force, for excommunication to really matter, the authority of the shepherds must have teeth. They must have some kind of weight, some kind of power that really counts. But where does this come from? Shepherds don't carry rods or swords like fathers or magistrates to make you fear their discipline. At a practical level, the only thing that allows them to discipline another member is that member himself. Hebrews 13 says, Remember them that have the rule over you, men that spoke unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for they watch in behalf of your souls as they that shall give account. Notice that Hebrews exhorts the members of the church to submit to those who have rule over them. Their rulers can't make them submit because they don't have any kind of weapon to do that. It is voluntary. And how did they gain this rule in the first place? Well, again, it had to be voluntary. Each member chose to be joined to that body and subject to its head, its shepherds. There is literally nothing, at least nothing righteous, that the shepherds can do to force anyone to submit to them. And this being so, since they cannot take rulership, it must be given to them. It must be agreed. But is this agreement just a general, yeah, this seems like a good idea for now, informal kind of thing? Is it just a vote by a show of hands? What does it look like? This is actually a critical question. The nature of this agreement is really important because it is voluntary. And since it cannot be enforced with violence, it must have moral weight. It doesn't have physical weight, so it must have moral weight. Or otherwise, the exercise of authority can easily be reduced to nothing but social pressure. The agreement between head and body must be of such a kind that everyone knows the authority is valid Everyone knows that they are committed to being under it. Everyone knows they can't just agree to disagree if a dispute arises. Otherwise, what happens if the man caught in sin just says, nah, you can't make me behave? What happens if he tries to treat the church like a social club and he treats sin like a faux pas as a mere social mistake instead of a moral error? What happens if he just refuses to listen? He says, in effect, I just disagree with the shepherds and let's, disagree, uh, let's agree to disagree. What happens if he doesn't recognize their authority? How do you ensure that the exercise of the keys of the kingdom has moral force rather than mere social force? Nothing could be more important 
than the distinction between a moral and a social force. Moral force is critical to the exercise of real authority. I talked last week about shepherds who would not tell their congregations God's requirements for clothing because the social pressure would be against them. But moral force can even work in, in the case of strong social pressure. So social pressure is against the shepherds, but the, the shepherds have moral force to their statements that works opposite to, pushes back against, and can overpower that social pressure. What if the congregation as a whole is in sin on some issue? The shepherds must confront it. This does happen, of course. I know of examples in many churches, and this is why, incidentally, I'm in favor of shepherds having other sources of income than just the church, because it is dangerous to the souls of the church for their shepherds to be under their power financially as well as socially. Be that as it may, suppose the shepherds of a church must be firm with their congregation about some sin, and their congregation is not easily swayed. Suppose some of the people do not have soft hearts. What happens then? Or we can turn it around because covenant obligations go both ways. What if the shepherds are in sin and the congregation speaks to them and the shepherds just double down and say, no, you guys just have to obey us. The congregation also needs moral authority rather than mere social pressure because God holds bodies responsible for what their heads do just as much as he holds heads responsible for what their bodies do. There has to be a way for everyone to be held to account. Usually, normatively, there has to be moral force to the shepherd's instruction. If the only power that they wield is social, then when the majority are against them, their power just disappears. But shepherds have more than mere social authority. They have covenantal authority. They are administrators of God's covenant people. So they have moral authority because they have covenant authority, and they speak for and answer to the Lord of the covenant, Jesus himself. Now the only way to establish clearly covenant authority is through a covenant. The only way to ensure that the moral, of the, the moral authority of the shepherds is recognized and upheld is through a covenant. That is the way that scripture gives us to do it. There must be a vow by which each member solemnly agrees to enter into that body and promises to be subject to its head. And the body in turn must vow back. There must be a commitment made by the one member to the whole church and by the whole church, and especially its head, to that one member in turn. That is the only way that when disputes arise, there can be no question about it. The members cannot pretend that the authority of the church is just a mere social force. Everyone can hold him to account because everyone knows it is a moral force backed up by a pledge, a vow, a covenant that was freely entered into. Because we all know that God ultimately administers covenants. All right, so Philip Kaiser, I believe it's Kaiser, not Kaiser, succinctly summarizes, quote, just as the chief shepherd has a register in heaven, under shepherds are called upon to keep statistics of the sheep they care for, to which some are added and from which some are taken away. Membership is a commitment of the people to each other, and it is a commitment of the shepherds to the sheep, end quote. As we are considering the nature of the church and of worship and of getting our ducks in a row to make Redwood more official, you might say, as a church, this question of membership and covenant is obviously an important one to be thinking about. 
When we speak of incorporating as a church, we are really speaking of taking vows, of covenanting together. Jared and I will have more to share with you soon about what we think that covenant should look like, but in the meantime, I hope this has given you some clarity on why it matters, and if you have any questions, let's, um, let's talk about them over lunch.